when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Mark Bergen, a reporter at Bloomberg and the author of a new book about YouTube. It's called Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. It's quite a title. YouTube has always been fascinating to me because it's such a black box. Everyone feels like they know how the platform works, but very few people have a real understanding of the internal politics and trade-offs that actually drive YouTube's decisions. Mark's book is full of reporting about those trade-offs, and it's one of the best of its kind that I've read. Not only does he take you inside the company, but he connects the decisions made inside YouTube to the creators who use the platform and the effects it has on them. This was a really fun conversation. I've known Mark for a long time. Keep in mind that for as little as we might know about YouTube, we probably know even less about TikTok, which is driving all sorts of companies, even YouTube, into competing with it. Okay, Mark Bergen, author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Here we go. Mark Bergen, you're a tech reporter at Bloomberg. You're also the author of the new book, Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Welcome to Decoder. Yeah, thanks for having me, Neil. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. We have known each other for a long time, uh, but it's the first time we've done anything like this. My first debut, long, long time listener, first time caller, whatever the phrase is. Well, the book is great. It's, I think, one of my favorite of this kind of books in quite some time. Uh, because there's there's a lot of reporting in it, just a lot of insight into how YouTube operates from a variety of different perspectives. But then, most importantly, I think, there's a lot of perspectives from the creator community at, at YouTube that sort of rounds out how these decisions affect a lot of people, both from the creator perspective and the audience perspective. So first of all, just congratulations on the book. It's great. Oh, thanks. Really appreciate it. Thanks for reading. Yeah. Um, well, it's my job, you know. But I, I think the listener should read it too in a non-professional. Uh, I hope you're entertained, at least <laughs> not non like somewhat non-professionally as well. Uh, very much so. So the, the book overall is it, it's a chronology of YouTube. It's a history of YouTube from its founding, from its early days as a scrappy startup that could barely afford to run itself, through the acquisition by Google, through some of the huge moments we've experienced with YouTube recently, including COVID and misinformation and Black Lives Matter and these massive. YouTube moments that we've had, but because it's Decoder and it's a show about decisions and how they're made, let's talk about some of the decisions at YouTube. In the prologue of the book, you write, everyone knew YouTube, but few knew how it works, who runs it, what decisions they make, and why those decisions matter. The book was written to remedy that, so a perfect match for our show. Uh, But I got to ask you the first question. Why did you choose to write a book about YouTube? Yeah, so I've been covering Google since 2015. After 2016, YouTube became much more central to to Google's financial success. And then at the same time, uh, much more central to its 
political headaches, it's business headaches, right? There was a massive boycott in 2017 of YouTube and a series of scandals. And we sort of, like you guys, I was covering the sort of bit by bit firestorm after firestorm. You know, I stepped back and realized like, this is a big sort of like kind of scratch. Every story felt like it was scratching the surface beneath. There was like this very complicated platform problem where it's, I think what sets it apart uh, among other things from other social media is like, they built this creator economy. They have this like three-sided platform between you know, the advertisers uh, and the sort of viewers and regulators. And that's what you know, Facebook has too. But what YouTube has is these millions of, of creators, who, many of whose like lives depend on it. And that like had so many more complications. You mentioned like the, their creators are, are full of characters, um, but it had a real impact on people's lives, the decisions they made, um, you know, and, and like had some some real drama built in. There was a the, like the campus shooting where a disgruntled creator came with a gun to YouTube in 2018. So there was just this, a lot of, of narrative built into this, this story. I also think, and my hope is that it's uh, kind of a dark, dark comedy in many ways. Like the people at YouTube and Google are idealistic about the internet. YouTube was like an underdog taking on Hollywood and all the conventions of Hollywood. And then within a few short years, you know, there's this whiplash where it becomes like big tobacco and YouTube is accused of you know, radicalization and traumatizing children, like propaganda, all the sort of worst aspects associated with the company. And, and that uh, quick turn, I thought, was just a fascinating story to, to unpack and tell. So that's a, a huge scope of a book. It's a huge scope of any story. I feel like you, every time we cover YouTube, it's a fight between writing 500 words on what just happened and writing 15,000 words on everything that led up to that moment. You've been covering Google for a long time. How long did it take you to write the book? I started the book very end of 2019 and started doing some reporting mostly in 2020. You know, I was like getting out and starting to meet people and really excited about doing like in-person meeting for the book. And then, you know, COVID hit. So yeah, I, I, it's like two years of, two and a half years of full-time reporting. One of the things that strikes me about Google in particular, that I'm not sure if it applies to YouTube, is that Google employees and ex-employees, they kind of talk. You know, they're, they're out there, they're vocal about all the things that happen in Google in strange ways. Mm -hmm. Apple employees are famously locked down. It's almost impossible to report on what happens. Some people have done it, uh, yeah. but it's really, really hard. Uh, where's YouTube on the scale? Were people eager to talk to you? Was it pretty locked down? I mean, generally, I think, and this is the case for a lot of historical stories, right? The further you go back in time, the more willing people are to talk, right? Like there are people who were at early YouTube are gone from the company, haven't been there for a while, feel like, you know, in some sense, less responsible for the problems. And the book kind of hits at this, like a really interesting tension between like the OG YouTube employees and, and arriving at Google. And I think there was a big cultural guess. And like, a lot of those people were much willing to talk because they felt like the platform they built was sort of steered in directions they didn't feel comfortable with. Up to more recent employees, there's still apprehension, even if they're critical of the company. You know, I did work with the, the company. I spoke to maybe a dozen or so of sort of on-record interviews with current employees. And the company was like willing to talk to a certain extent and get their story out there. I think it's come down in like in Hollywood, like the people around the multi-channel networks and, and YouTube creators, they're super chatty and like they think the story is, <laughs> they're at the center of the story. Like the, the book spends a lot of time with Maker Studios, which is I think a, like a really fascinating story as well. And I think make, people at Maker like deserve their own book and, and mini series and you know, documentary, whatever, what have you. So it, it totally varies. There are certainly people in, in the thick of YouTube that have, uh, haven't spoken to me, you know, I think like, look at the most recent CEO of uh, YouTube before Susan Wojcicki, Seller Kamangar, like the founders of Google, has basically like dropped off the planet since 2014. Yeah, that's actually one thing that I want to kind of get at with YouTube. It is one of the strangest platforms on the modern internet in the modern culture, right? It's among the oldest now. It feels understandable in some way. There are people that run large businesses entirely based on YouTube. It's a stable relationship in that sense. We can tell kids who want to be creators, just start shooting with your phone and start a YouTube channel and some predictable set of things will happen to them. On the flip side, it's really opaque, right? Like it's hard to know what kinds of decisions YouTube makes. It's hard to know who is making those decisions. It's more opaque than a Twitter or Facebook in that way. After reporting on it for so long, how do you see it? I think that's a really good analysis. Like part of it sort of being opaque is just the scale. 
you know, you mentioned Twitter, like YouTube has more monthly users in India than Twitter has globally. Like it's just, it's just so big. And I think that like Google tends to operate, like it makes every decision at scale. It wants to like, as much as it can, wants to make consistent decisions across the board, right? It really struggles with the idea of like, and it certainly has done this in the past, but like philosophically, it really struggles with like, we're going to, um, act on one creator this way and another this way. And like, we're going to act on one misinformation case this way and, and then treat another differently. Like it just, it, it wants to do as much as it can, uh, like across the board at, at scale. And I think that structurally is like one of the reasons why sometimes, um, they move pretty slowly. There's like a corporate culture and I get into this book about like consensus. You know, what's, what's unique about it, uh, in some ways is it's the only social network that hasn't really like to have like one founder there the entire time, right? There's no Zuckerberg, Dorsey, Spiegel, right? It's had like effectively like three different stewards and eras uh, as chief, chief executives that are kind of steward of this platform that is like its own beast. And I think the a lot of the, the Wojcicki era, the most recent since 2014, it's like very consensus oriented. And so I think that's part of the, is that like the decisions at YouTube move pretty slowly. So I'm gonna describe it as like a large tanker. They move like very careful turns now because like every turn they make has has big consequences. I think, yeah, like they are sort of mature. Maybe that's a good way, a way to put it in that they've been around for a long time that like they've built, like they've gone through the book talks about like how they went through the ringer on like all these different problems. And, and I think came out the other end prepared in, in some ways, like not always, but at least like better prepared to deal with, you know, they have levers like in pool now. It's like, oh, it's like we can demonetize, we can like remove channels from recommendations. We can handle all these sort of controversies that, that we're seeing spill over into every platform now that does creator economy stuff, right? Like TikTok's going through things that YouTube already went through, Spotify, Twitch, like Instagram, you name it. That's why I think the history of YouTube is so interesting because it's like the direction that social media is moving in is this creator economy. Uh, and so like all these platforms are going to have similar problems. Do you think the overall story of YouTube right now is a success? Is it a tragedy? Is it a cautionary tale? Like how would you categorize it? A tragic comedy. Um, I think, I mean, I think it's hard to say it's not a success. You know, I was just looking at the, the number. I was like, so YouTube 2019 is when they started, Google started sharing their their actual sales figures for the first time. Uh, and they've only gone back to 2017. So we don't know what happened before then. In that year, 2017 on ads, which is a line bulk, like, I don't know, 99% or whatever the, uh, their business, they don't share the rest, but um, 8 billion. And last year it was 29 billion. So like, just in those five years since 2017, like that's a, a pretty solid success, right? There was that Pew research that came out a couple of weeks ago about US teens, right? And and their usage of social media, like 95%. So they, they use YouTube. It was the most like frequent visit. It's like a, a whole generation of children just grow up on it. I think like there's reporting in the book that talks about around like 2009, like Google's CFO was like, this is the worst business on the planet. Like maybe we should sell this thing off, right? Like <laughs> 13 years later, it is a pivotal part of Google and every investor on every earnings call is like talking about YouTube as sort of one of the, the key features for Alphabet. So that's been a success. I think as far as like its impact on on like broader society and politics, I think the, you know, jury's still out kind of thing. Like I think part of the books is saying that this has been a really under scrutinized platform given its its influence and power uh, and for a variety of reasons and sort of it's like a call to like hey we should pay more attention to this thing that seems like the hardest thing to do i mean i i agree with you we pay a lot of attention to youtube but it's really easy to pay attention to a youtuber and not youtube and i think that that cycle i see play out over and over again even inside of youtube right as you read the book youtube is like okay we're going to solve this one person and that will create a rule that will solve everybody else. And that is just not a, a realistic way to go about it. Like the Logan Paul rule. Yeah, yeah. like Lo Logan Paul, uh, PewDiePie, right? They, they're focused entirely on one creator who has some sort of issue or is pushing the boundaries, maybe intentionally, aggressively pushing the boundaries. And they're like, well, if we can just figure out how to define the boundary better, no one else will ever push the boundaries again. Uh, I think that's fair. I mean, so much of it was like really inventing stuff on the fly. Like if you go back to, to, to PewDiePie scandal, this was in early uh, 2017. You guys covered it really well. But like that was before Harvey Weinstein reporting. That was before like, like we're so tired of cancel culture debates, but that was before cancel culture was a thing, right? Like 
And there were people at, at certainly I talked to for the book that were like, we moved way too slowly. Like we were not, you know, in hindsight, at least, but even at the time, like, like not aware of the sort of like real like consequences of that or like having the, their most popular creator. Uh, if, if you'll even like believe what he and Maker says, like doing this sat satire, right? So if you consider it satire and give him the benefit of the doubt, like still there's like that satire is not playing well to everyone. And like YouTube made no effort to communicate like, oh, look, this is satire. And like our rules of satire around something like the genocide of the Jewish people is like, because you know, this, like for this stated reason, right? Like one YouTube employee put it to me pretty candidly. It was like, imagine like Susan walking into a room with PewDiePie that year in like a Hollywood soiree and being like, look, this is my biggest star. And yet, it, right? It like doesn't, it does not the same as like an HBO executive or a Disney executive. That's just the nature of, of YouTube as a platform. Um, and I think the company is always sort of playing the juggle sort of trying to have its cake and eat it too, right? Of like both like having a big brand cast presentation for advertisers where they can roll out the star and admirable creators and, and ignore the like creators that don't necessarily reflect the, the values that it wants to reflect. That dynamic, I think, plays out in something you said earlier, which is that there isn't a main character of YouTube. There isn't a Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg. That's not how Susan presents herself to the world. Is that by design? I think so. I mean, I think there was a point when when YouTube and I have this discussion. That I thought it was really interesting that like before YouTube, initial coverage of, of Susan was when she was was running like the AdSense business and like Google's second biggest hits after search, right? And they, there was a series of stories that were sort of like meet the Googler, most important Googler you've never heard of, right? But she wasn't like Sheryl Sandberg in the sense of like didn't write her own book or spend time like really crafting this public persona. It was very much like I'm a working mom and a competent executive. I think more recently, you know, she's around 2019, 2020, started doing a lot more YouTuber interviews and like became much more accessible to YouTubers. But, but you know, even like YouTubers, some of the larger ones know Robert Kinsel, who's like the, the kind of content boss more than they know Susan. And so even certainly like viewers, I mean, how many like people, regular viewers know who she is? And that's, I think, a, an interesting part of the book, and I'm really curious what readers think, is like you have this this person who has like been very intentionally been putting herself in the background. Actually, that part of the book really explained one of the weirder disconnects that I have felt covering YouTube for however many years, is that YouTube executives and the leadership have this view of YouTube that no one else has. They have the data of what people actually do. Yeah. And so we have been at conferences where we have seen Susan Wojcicki confidently say that YouTube is a music service. Right. Just straight up, YouTube is a music service. And the whole audience is like, what planet are you on? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But she has the data that says people are just watching tons of music videos. So that naturally, they should just launch a music service and talk about YouTube as a music service. When even if that's what you're doing on YouTube, that's not what you think you're doing. So there's this huge disconnect. Is that because she's so hidden that she's not connecting with the actual users or that executives are not connecting with the users or just perceive them through data? That may be partially it. I mean, I do think YouTube is, my colleague Lucas Shaw uh, coined this one, like the biggest music service that no one talks about. Like it is huge, right? But YouTube scale is like, it's it's probably like the biggest podcasting service too, right? At this point, like. It, no, it is. Actually, your other colleague, Ashley Carmen, just reported that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, it's the biggest kids service in the world, like by far, kids entertainment platform, right? Like it's the biggest place for like finding, you know, videos about your sink, fixing your sink, right? Like it's, you know, you have, the list goes on and on. I think like it's scale, just, just it's, um, makes it so like it, it always wins the superlatives for a long time one of the like fascinating trends in, in the company is there was this joke that like people at youtube didn't watch youtube you know i talked to, to for the book like matt pat matthew patrick the game theorist is like one of the he makes like phenomenal youtube videos but also like really understands the platform and he's like at one point telling the company like you guys have to watch your platform like and in many ways because you, you like all the sort of trends whether they were like very positive trends of like transformative like all the sort of parts of YouTube creativity that have uh, been for, like profoundly transformative and all the really corrosive ones, we can tick them off. Um, YouTubers spotted them first. I think that started to change in the past couple of years. And some of this is just like, you know, we, I can't expect Susan Wojcicki to like watch every single YouTube video, right? Or like even keep her tabs on the larger trends in the platform. But there is sort of a drive for like, there's like a business strategy, right? Like Sundar, Google CEO talks a lot about YouTube as this like education and learning platform, which is 
true, but like there's a big missed opportunity there where like YouTube has never really like turned that into a a product set or a feature or like have any sort of direction, like intentional strategy where you could say like, oh, they're really trying to make this an educational platform, right? They could, like there's plenty of like very high quality uh, educational material on YouTube. And I think that's a total, like one of their many like blown opportunities there um, for a variety of reasons they like didn't pursue that path. Is that YouTube or is that Google? Right. I feel, I feel like you've just described a lot of Google in that everyone can see Google's opportunities and a little bit of focus and tenacity and iteration turns them into huge businesses. And Google's like, what if we launch another YouTube? What if we have eight messaging apps? You know, the most the interesting inflection point going back, and this is like a decision that was pretty key, was like Google Plus, right? Like, so this is a decade ago now, but like, it's hard. Doing this book, I, I recalled how, and I don't think I fully understood how like really critical that was to Google at one point, right? Oh yeah, like, they, th- they thought they were betting the company on it. And that included YouTube and it like really frustrated people at YouTube. And like, there's a detail in the book that they even considered. At one point, I don't know how far along it came, but it was enough to like, be a real consideration to put like YouTube on the video tab of Google Plus, which would have been like, you look back now, you're like, what in the world were they thinking? <laughs> I think like that slowed down and had a really negative effect on YouTube, um, certainly on morale. I think later on, it's a little like YouTube has become much more independent in some ways. It's interesting to see like where. I'm trying to think about a recent example where where Google. I think Google is there. Are definitely people at Google that have put more pressure on YouTube. Um, I think Sundar, the CEO in particular, would have preferred to see them move quicker on like brand safety. I mean, one person put it to me kind of bluntly. It's like Sundar pays attention to YouTube when the noise gets too loud. Uh, And I think that's generally the case. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, Mark is going to tell us about the most important decisions that have been made at YouTube. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. So we said the book is about decisions. We should talk about some of the big decisions that you go through in the book. What do you think are the most important decisions that have been made at YouTube? I'll give you uh, three. One is the partner program, launching the, the, the YouTube partner program in 2007. Two is when they, they switched their key metric from views to watch time in, in early 2012. Third one is, is up for debate, but I, I, I think it's, it was the beginning of 2018 
late 2017, they raised the threshold for the partner program. So at that point, it was basically like, unless you're blatantly violating copyright laws or or like hate speech rules, you were good to get monetized on, on YouTube. And it built like probably the, the biggest sort of digital media economy ever. And then for they had to dramatically scale that back. And that had all sorts of consequences that they're still sort of dealing with today. Yeah, those would be my my votes for the three. All right, let's start with the partner program you already talked about a little bit. Partner program, for people who don't know, is if you're a YouTuber of a certain scale, like Mark is saying, you can sign up to get your videos monetized. YouTube runs ads on your videos. You get a cut. YouTube keeps a cut of that money. It's pretty clean in that the ads are pre-rolls and mid-rolls. So before you watch a video, in the middle of a video, an ad runs. YouTube can attribute that to various creators in their videos a very simple sort of calculation there. It makes a lot of people a lot of money. Uh, we just had Hank Green on the show. He is very passionate that YouTube's partner program is the best one and creator funds like TikTok and even YouTube shorts are not the way forward. So the partner program allows many different kinds of creators to thrive and build real businesses. No one has copied it. Why do you think other social networks haven't copied partner program? And, and why do you think YouTube is stuck with it? First off, it like it was interesting to me that reporting the book that it wasn't like coming out of the gate. Like you remember, Smosh was like the, yeah. the biggest YouTube channel for a long. Like they they were one of the, the early. I think it was about thirty channels that had the first partner program, and they initially turned ads off because their fans were so pissed off about seeing ads and like calling them sellout. And it's just so funny. Like that fast forward today when there's like every YouTube video has so many brand deals. And to answer your question, why why it hasn't been copied? Uh, one, Google is a an exceptionally good company at digital advertising, the world's biggest digital advertising company. Like it even before YouTube, right? It had AdSense. It had this like mechanism for paying online content, like monetizing web pages. In some ways, the partner program is just like sticking that on video. I mean, it's a more complicated system. Um, YouTube also built Content ID around that same time, which like, your audience probably knows, but but like that's effectively a way that that like solve their biggest problem at the time, which is like, we're be either being sued by big, like traditional media, or they like, don't want to put their content here. And here was a revenue, like a way for like, oh, traditional media, if you're even if you put your content here, or if someone else does, you can still make money off of it. And probably like the single biggest product that, that uh, made YouTube a success. So I think that's, that's partly, you know, Facebook has arguably like the second biggest ads apparatus and has not been able to figure this this system out. I don't, I mean, it's not for lack of trying in some sense. Uh, I mean, I do think that like Google has the benefit of just, they have an army of, of like salespeople and, and advertisers that are like very willing to give money to, to Google. Um, we'll, we'll be curious to see if, um, I guess like, you know, when, when Netflix and all these streaming move into ads, that's not necessarily a similar model, but like, you know, that, that's like sort of digital video advertising, right? And that's like something that, that YouTube has had sort of a lock on for years. Walk you through the decision to turn it on and then the decision to walk it back. I mean, the decision to turn it on was pretty, I had some like foresight. There were competitors, long gone competitors, Rubber, if you remember that one, uh, Blip TV, I think was a prominent one. I remember I, Justine, was like one of the early YouTubers was experimenting with what whatever Twitch was called, Justin TV. There was partially that some of this first wave generation of creators went out, came on the platform, no guarantees, no, not even guarantees, no way for them really to make money, let alone guarantee for, for financial success. And then within a few short years, it was like, oh, maybe there's, there's something here. Like there's certainly an audience here. And then there were companies like Blip TV paying. I think, you know, Chad Hurley, who's YouTube's first CEO, co-founder said like early on, they didn't want to run ads. So they didn't want to like have commercial incentives to be driving why people just wanted people to upload to YouTube for, for all the reasons that, you know, initially it started, right? Like you want to share or like you want to, you want to put your creativity out there. You want your audience to sell without any reward. I think like they launched it in May of 2007, which was super early. Like it didn't really start scaling out until five years later. It was a pretty select group of, of creators. So that's 2011, 2012 was when they start to really expand it. At that point, you have the multi-channel networks that are like came out of nowhere and we're doing this sort of pyramid schemey, like um, alleged pyramid scheme. Uh, <laughs> um, I've like built this model where they just signed as many creators as possible. And then like, you know, because at that time, the only way to get monetized was basically to either be a star, a really big creator, or to be signed with an MCN. And so like YouTubers just signed with MCNs in tens of thousands, right? Uh, often without reading the contracts. 
And that financial model then sort of imploded for a variety of reasons. But but basically, YouTube is like, wow, we don't want these like kind of sketchy third parties to be running this. We, like we can do it in house. And then what you would happened in 2017, what I found on the reporting, you know, they had the big ad boycotts early in 2017 that were driven by like extremist videos and and you know, household brands found them like, oh, we're on an ISIS video. Like, look, we're on a neo-Nazi. I really think the key there was the kids crisis. That's where YouTube was like, wow, we cannot uh, monetize everyone anymore. We like have to make a, a change. I think up until that point in, in late of that year, I think they thought they were getting out of the ads crisis without making any sort of major structural changes. Uh, and it was like the kids issue that really pushed them to, to make that fairly massive uh, change in, in the payments. There's a lot of issues. Which kids issue do you mean? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. When you talk about YouTube and kids issues, there's at least three that I can pick out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, fair. Totally, totally fair. Uh, so Elsagate was was the, the popular name, right? So this was in late 2017. It was basically like this, like multiple things happening. One was this sort of very strange trend of like the Spider-Man Elsa, like adults dressing up as superheroes, which like became some of the most popular videos on YouTube. And some of it was benign and like silly and sort of vaudevillian. And some of it was like very sexual and disturbing and like intentionally sort of pranking and like trolls pushing the limits. And then James Bridal is this writer in the UK, which wrote this um, very popular post. If you remember, like something is wrong on the internet. Great title. Uh, would be a good name for a book too. And his was more about like just the, at this point, there were this sort of like he called industrialized nightmare production, which is these animation studios that would just churn out YouTube content for kids, some of it, which was like clearly not even designed by humans, sort of made by bots, right? And sort of like bots making videos for bots. The virality of his post combined with like the fact that advertisers were freaking out about kids material was the the crisis that like, it was Thanksgiving in 2017. And that's when like the uh, YouTube finally decided to take that, like take some pretty significant action. Just reading that section of the book, one thing that strikes me, YouTube often presents a very placid face to the world. Like every social media company to some extent does this. We know there are problems. We're very diligently working on them. You couldn't possibly understand the trade-offs that we must manage. And then inside of YouTube, it's here's a post that went viral. Here's another adpocalypse for all the advertisers going away. And it's just a pure scramble, right? They're like, they don't see it. What is the tension there? It seems like they are paying attention to their platform in some way, and yet they're often surprised. Yes, I think surprised by the scale. I think that crisis in particular, the ads team was surprised. Like, Sridhar Ramaswamy used to be the SVP for ads, and he's spoken about this publicly before. Like, I like watched these videos, and there was one really popular one called Toys Freaks, which is this whole complicated story too. But, you know, watch the Toy Freaks video and was like, what? And then like, and there were a bunch of stories around the time. It was like, you know, Google's funding this, right? His division ran ads. And I, I think you can like plausibly make the argument like about naivete there. But like at the same time, like YouTube is a big space. You know, this channel was the 68th most popular at the time. Like there's still a lot of channels ahead of that. But so I think that that they weren't paying attention to this. And, and another reason is that they typically like, you know, this is before 2019 when the FTC fined them for violating COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Act. So before then, like YouTube lived in this will for ignorance where it's like, we don't have kids on our platform, right? We have YouTube Kids, which is an app, and then everyone else is like over 13 or with adult supervision because that's what, that's what the law says. And so we like really have to be, they felt like they had to be kind of hands off on kids stuff for that reason. So I think that was another major factor there. I think the other one just to briefly touch on is like they talk a lot about internally about precision and recall right with their machine learning systems and like people told me a lot like the reason that sometimes they move slowly on these major crises was because anytime youtube launches something if it has sort of precision and recall meaning like if its machine systems aren't like quite precise enough to like identify certain things that they're trying to filter out it's going to have all sorts of unintended consequences um and they were always pretty worried about that because, you know, these were like creators and this happened during that crisis. They moved pretty quickly. They killed a bunch of channels. There were a lot of creators that rightly or wrongly were like, oh my God, do you just <laughs> pull the plug on my app? Like without any, you know, without any warning, right? Or without any warning, without any explanation, really. They get an email that says like, 
your channel's removed or your channel's no longer able to run ads. Um, and there are countless stories about that, right? Right. YouTube makes a moderation decision that destroys a business. It yeah. It, it, I'm not trying to defend them necessarily, but I, I am saying that like this is a, a set of decisions that they in, in self made by like launching the partner platform like this, where it was sort of self-governance for a long time and have and then all of a sudden and like changing the rules very dramatically in a short short amount of time we have a sort of internally at the verge a very complicated relationship with audience data like theoretically <laughs> we're set about the future and i think data can only tell you about the past is that what's happening inside of google like they're waiting for enough data to show them that a thing is real while the creators and the audience can just see the thing is happening without having to count it and put it in a spreadsheet <sighs> That's an interesting way to put it. Maybe. I actually don't have an answer for you about the like Spider-Man Elsa trend. Is it really? Because <laughs> we're talking <laughs> about kids. Like there were videos in 2016 from pretty, pretty popular creators like pinpointing this, this trend, right? This is sort of a silly example, but a few years ago, right? They were doing the first funded originals program in 2011. They were like, we're going to maybe, okay, they, this is a big dramatic, another decision, a lesser decision, but an important one where we're going to start funding channels um, give them like upfront money based on sort of, uh, and this is also a misconception, but it actually wasn't just giving them money. It was actually like giving them an advance on their ad credits. But anyway, funding channels that way. And they're like, we're going to look through the list of popular categories to identify the ones we would want to fund. Right. And then they're like, one of the huge ones was military. And they're like, okay, like, is this, is there actually like a lot of like military footage on YouTube? But it turns out that like the machine system was, was, uh, categorizing Call of Duty as military and so like every call of duty video was was a military title um so i do think some of this is just like the clunky world of machine intelligence um and that was a decade ago and i'm certain that they've gotten more more precise and granular but but just uh there, there may be a way like they they miss these things because it's not apparent in the data or they're just like willfully being blind to it so youtube turns on the partner program for almost everybody a flood of creators show up. Then they raise the floor because they're like, hey, a bunch of these creators are actually going to destroy our business, right? Big advertisers see their videos are against some weird stuff. That is not a manageable situation. We need to make sure that people have enough audience or enough subscribers to make it worth it. So they raise the floor. How do they raise the floor? This is the other big decision. How did they raise the floor and what were the consequences of that? They said in minimum, uh, you have to have a certain number of subscribers and watch hours. From my understanding, talking to Neil Mohan, is there, you've had on before, they're number two effectively at YouTube. It was like, I think I can remember his exact phrase, but it was something like they looked at like the number that would be around where people made a, like a living wage or like a people. Okay, here's the amount where people start to like become financially dependent on YouTube, basically, which is really fascinating. I think, you know, one of the other the debates when they had, they switched to watch time, um, if I'm jumping ahead, but we, they, when they switched to watch time, they're like, well, maybe another metric we could have is like, we could start to prioritize videos where creators make six figures a year. Like, and, and so there's like, the book is, I think, really interesting in that, like, there's all these sort of alternative histories, like what if YouTube had gone <laughs> in this direction? Um, but sorry, to go back to your point, yeah, so they raised the threshold, you know, the most immediate and, and really tragic consequence is like, I, I will just to be very clear, like not drawing a, a line of fault. Like I don't I don't think that YouTube was responsible for this at all. But there was a creator who was upset about these series of changes and came to, to like open fire on the campus. But for people at YouTube, they're like, oh, my God, like these decisions we make have like real life consequences that are like visceral. The other I mean, I think the the other sort of unintended consequences was this rise in merch, which has been, you know, YouTube is now moving in that direction and trying to do what they call alternative monetization. Uh, I don't think they would have done that aggressively without this change because a lot of creators move that way as their own. I think it also got them into like some legal trouble, certainly with like kids creators too, when when like kids and creators start to, to dabble in more commercial products. It's now more regulated in the sense of like in any parts of YouTube is regulated. So that that's been a bigger consequence. You know, they they started to bring the number up. I think the most recent one was they said like three billion right now of creators who are in the partner program. So they're like working it way up slowly. And I think they've you know they've certainly put in a lot more guardrails now. Uh, at a time when if um, before then like demonetizing channels or videos wasn't really a thing, uh, and now there's like pretty there's a, a system in place to do that and, and i think youtube does it 
often, I mean, you know, let's be honest here about transparency. Like um, sometimes the creators, creators will know, but certainly viewers don't like, like you and I don't know how often we're watching a video and it's like, oh, this video has been demonetized for this reason. Like we don't know that at all. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's actually, I mean, one of the longest running jokes on the show is that every YouTube creator reaches a point in their YouTube career where they make a video about how mad they are at YouTube. And that yeah, is yeah. just like Which a is sign. great material for the book, by the way. <laughs> so it's, it, it's a fascinating platform in the sense that, yes, they like, it's probably the only one that lets its, that its users and creators are like, its biggest users have spent a considerable amount of airtime uh, bitching about the, the platform. Is the platform responsive to them? That's something that I, I keep trying to suss out, right? Most platforms are not responsive to their creator communities. Like uh, Kim Kardashian can complain about Instagram turning into TikTok and Adam Masseri will make a video and he's basically like, sorry, I'm not sorry, go eat your vegetables. Like this is where we're going, but we under we hear you, right? And that's basically the response from a, a Facebook. Like we're we're on our path and you can be along for the ride. We'll miss you if you're not. YouTube seems like it responds a little bit more openly, but still not as much as anybody would want. Yeah, I think there were, there were certainly points in the past when it did not. And there's some 20s, earliest 2016, before Trump's election, like several female creators talking about doxing and harassment. And I think it took like three more years until YouTube really changed its policies there. So not across the board, for sure. And there's been well-documented reporting about how they tend to listen to to bigger creators more, which like makes sense right like it's like it's almost like you know is if youtube was more willing to be like yeah of course we're gonna listen like <laughs> listen to our bigger creators right like hank green is a perfect example like hank green's not huge compared to other like subscriber wise but like hank green is like trusted by creators he's like ad safe like he is like a moral a voice of like moral and authority on on the platform and i know he has the ear of of the executives there how influential that like years I, I don't know like and i think you could certainly argue that they're much more responsive to creators now because of tiktok like new competition forces them to be more attentive and responsive to creators more than anything else we need to take another break but when we come back we're going to talk all about the effects of the youtube algorithm preferring watch time to views it's an important one stick around support for this show comes from slack you're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back. Before the break, we were talking about the partner program, but let's talk about recommendations and watch time. On other platforms, let's just use TikTok as an example. If you want to be big on TikTok, you can do the trends, you can play the games, you can dance, I don't know what you can do, but the algorithm is going to find you mm -hmm. and blow you up or not. And there's a lot of playing into the algorithm that people just sort of nakedly do in 2022 with TikTok, which is a new, I think a new phenomenon to not hide it, that that's the game you're playing, to like 
openly and aggressively go for virality and TikTok because you know the whole platform is the algorithm. And that is what is expressed to you as the user. So it's right out in the open. YouTube was not that thing. YouTube started out with a curated homepage. You have a lot of uh, material from the people who used to curate the homepage as human reviewers of YouTube in the very beginning. It slowly got more and more algorithmically curated. And then they made this shift in the recommendation algorithm to reward watch time, just like total minutes watched will now be the biggest signal of the recommendation algorithm. That feels like a massive decision that almost no one has really impacted except for you. Walk us through that one. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I think readers will too, in part because it's like a just this really fascinating example of like unintended consequences. And, you know, like talk back to people who were involved in that at the time, like YouTube measured by views, it felt like a wrong metric. And I think they were right in the sense that like, there's a big problem of, of clickbait. So uh, Reply Girls phenomenon, I don't know if anyone in the audience remembers this, but this was like 2011. It sort of like, it was an early example. Uh, I think it was when YouTube was sort of had passed over more of their feed to algorithmic curation, uh, whatever you want to call it. And um, these were uh, largely women that had like sorted out this way to sort of game the system in, in kind of like a like a hacking genius way. Uh, they weren't really like called hackers. And they were actually, I believe there's been reporting that they were like doxxed and threatened, which is a whole separate thread about YouTube's problem with, with dealing with women. But um, at the time they had like, they figured out the, the reply videos, they would like put up a video uh, that would use the same tags and titles of a really popular video and like have like a low cut shirt on, right? And then like it would just get a lot of clicks and then, and then people would, YouTube would see this in the data, people were clicking on it and then they were jumping off, right? They could see um, that someone's like hadn't watched for a few seconds and or people were doing all sorts of games to, to like get clicks, right? And so there was this really long debate. There was a period where this was like, I think around the time when YouTube was starting to plateau in some like worrying sense, uh, mobile traffic hadn't really taken off. They're like, we're getting like five minutes a day from from viewers. Uh, and there was, I, I think one thing that I want readers to get across is like YouTube is a pivotal moment. Like they saw their competition as television. Um, and like television had like four or five hours of time of Americans a day, right? Like at that time and like TV, like advertisers are like spending so much money on TV and like relative to like the time and sort of audience fervor and like what we have online, we need to convince advertisers to come over, right? And so like the metric they stuck on and the book gets into this, I, if you want to unpack this, I think it's really interesting. Like they read this Olympians book, this Olympic rower. The book was called like, Will it make the boat go faster? <laughs> and it became this like book for like business bestseller. And the idea is that like you want to have like one thing that will like inspire your team and you want to have like one central focus. And so it's like anything you do in the training regiment, okay, does it make the boat go faster? Like, should we eat this thing for breakfast? Does it make the boat go faster? And that was where the epiphany for the YouTube folks that were planning this, the leadership then was like, we need something that'll make our boat go faster and like watch time will be it like watch time and and i think what was interesting was that and we talked about this a little bit with like youtube google like watch time is very antithetical to google's business in the sense that like google.com is you know we want to get you off i think this has changed and like yeah, Google Low from, from yelp bit, can, yeah. <laughs> i can hear like the yelp alarm clocks going but like <laughs> at a time google was like we want to get you off somewhere into the web preferably like a place that you know paid us for advertising right but um youtube's like no no no. we want people to like linger around and like the classic example they threw around a lot was the bow tie video it's like is it better to like have a 30 second clip that's like here how to tie a bow tie quickly or like a 10 minute video where someone's going to watch the entire 10 minutes to like watch and like to understand how to tie a bow tie, right? And it's like, clearly we want people watching for 10 minutes, right? It had a an immediate impact in the sense of like, um, I mentioned that the Reply Girls, but there were also like one of the biggest YouTube channels at the time was like the, on the eHow videos, right? And it was mm -hmm. like the major series of like how to do everything. And like, you know, we can, maybe this is a uh, debatable, but like the quality of those videos wasn't great, right? And so I think watch time did surface like higher quality. It also created you know, gaming, like beauty, vlogging, like alt-right podcasts, like all these sort of verticals that we now associate with with YouTube came because they are like low production cost, basically just like as, as easy to get as many minutes on to the platform as possible. And it, I think it did snuff out a lot of, I spent some time with some early YouTubers there who in this weird, like now they were basically making TikTok videos, right? They spent yeah. a lot of time making these short videos that's like Mr. Guitar Man, right? Was his big YouTube hit before the watch time era. 
and he'd make these like minute long like mini films um and then you know the the algorithm switches and he's no longer a star in some ways and i don't i don't think it's because like joe penna became like less creative as a creative person or his videos were like less enticing to viewers i think it's because of the big change that, they, that youtube made behind the scenes it's funny now that they have youtube shorts right i mean they're, they're in many ways right back to where they started yes i think that they've said like the first youtube video was a short it was just like <laughs> guys you, like the first like four years of youtube was a short like there was no such thing as like long for like um but yes uh one of the many 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 delightful ironies of the company it strikes me actually just stepping back from youtube but into google generally that an effect of like google's monetization on the world is that it actually gets harder to get to some information because google demands padding is a sign of quality right like i'm if you search for a recipe in order to get ranked the recipes need long stories before the recipes and so like google's monetization engine has demanded some amount of interference between you and the thing that you're you're trying to get to. If you're looking for how to tie a bow tie, YouTube's monetization engine has demanded that that video be 10 minutes long with a mid-roll ad in it versus just how to tie a bow tie. And then you back that even farther and it's like, oh, all of this is a game, right? Like what YouTube makes is a game that spits out money and they are just constantly kind of rewriting the rules of this game and then the rules get broken and they have to scramble to write new rules. Do you think YouTube as an entity understands that that's what it's doing, that it is fundamentally unpredictable what billions of content creators will do, and they're just kind of like squeezing the balloon on what bad thing will happen today? Was it last year that they made like that really distasteful tweet that they they deleted that was making fun of a creator for creators for posting 10 minute videos? I forget, you remember this one? <laughs> It was, I think they deleted YouTube crisis number 5,007. Yeah, it was whoever made the decision. I'm sure someone could report that out. I think that, no, I think that to go back to the watch time transition, like for them, I think there, there are certainly people, especially who worked with the creators. And I think the important thing to remember back then was there really wasn't a creator economy. Like there were a few like partner managers here and there, but like, you know, YouTube didn't even think these, the creators were commercial viable. That was part of a structural problem where like there really wasn't an advocate for creators like we think of today or people like touching base with with them in a, in a really meaningful way. Like Hank Green, who you add on, like Hank Green started VidCon, like that was a whole community. Like YouTube was sort of there, but it what like, you know, it, YouTube wasn't present for a long time in these conversations. And then once they started getting present, like all the disasters struck in the Trump era. And then I think their priority has been like just trying to put in guardrails since then. So, you know, I think algorithmically, it's like we want to get people the right things. Like watch time was we want to deliver the best videos to people. We don't want them to click on clickbait. And then it was like, oh God, like we don't want all the downstream uh, unintended consequences of watch time, right? Like we don't want to be accused of, of spreading hate speech and conspiracy theories. And so, I think that was like so much of it is like trying to control this very uncontrollable thing. A really interesting example in the book is like it's happened multiple times where you have LGBTQ creators being demonetized for discussing words like sex or lesbian and gay, right? Um, or even more like awful, the like anti-gay therapy ads that were running on their channels. Right. And like people inside YouTube were like, we do not want this, like <laughs> telling the creators, like, this is, we did not intend to do this. Right. Like we are trying to fix it as quickly as possible. And I think genuinely, like, that's why I think the, I think the book has sort of had these moments of like the dark comedy of like, there are people inside YouTube that are like, no, this is not what we <laughs> wanted at all. Right. But like, there's, it's just kind of complicated to snuff these things out so quickly. That first crisis where LGBTQ were being demonetized and, and YouTube employees were like, we don't want this. They work really hard. And then they like figured out the problem and launched it. And like, as they were doing that, there was a massive like ads boycott about a totally different issue, right? And so like the YouTube employees working on this issue were like, oh, great. So like we get really not like there's a, we're working in this little fire and then there's a gigantic firestorm happening behind us. That machine learning, right, it's come up several times in this conversation. Like, there's not YouTube employees watching every video, right? There are computers that are scanning videos and trying to match patterns and make complicated decisions at scale, which 
to YouTube's credit, has largely worked in the sense that YouTube exists and mostly careens from crisis to crisis with periods of relative quiet in between. Like, uh, no one has figured this out, right? Like, YouTube is as close to figuring it out as it can. On the flip side, I often joke that most people understand the copyright system on YouTube Mm -hmm. better than how their local government works because they're just constantly exposed to it. Right. Like they, you see it, like you, you you might not even know the speed limit, like two streets over from you, but you, you, some content creator has complained about content ID. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this thing that enables YouTube to exist. It's a moat for YouTube in a massive way. What is your perception of that understanding of YouTube that at some level, the computers are just doing whatever they want and people are going to scramble back in to try to guide the ship back on course. I think that's fair. I think that like they felt that more, most acutely. I'll go return to the that big like Elsa Gate moment, right? That was the the really powerful example of like there's a trend taking off in the platform, and like many, and employees at YouTube, if they were watching these videos, like we don't want this trend to take off in the platform, and yet, and and some of it like they had it. I think they've had a much more like hands on approach, but back then, and there was a sentiment that that people had where it's like, okay, who are we to impose? Our edit, like our viewing judgment on on viewers, right? Like uh, Guillaume Cheslo, who's the, the former YouTube engineer, who's been one of their biggest critics, like the algorithmic transparency. You know, told me like when he initially brought his findings about like, hey, the recommendation engine is this is in 2016. The recommendation engine is recommending like Alex Jones and all these sort of conspiratorial videos. Her former colleague of his, like, eh, you know, like people are clicking on it, right? Like. <laughs> Um, what are we going to do? There's like a, you know, we, we, you've heard this from argument from other companies too. And I do think that like YouTube is like Facebook aware that like they're living in a, a relative bubble. I think the Trump election and even the most recent election, uh, reinforced this idea that like, oh, wow, there's like, you know, 70 million people that don't necessarily think like us. Uh, and there are users, like we need to be more thoughtful and like, careful and cautious about what decisions we're imposing there in some ways then i think that like they have you know there's after their big controversy they went out and hired thousands of tens of the contracted thousands of moderators but like and i think in an ideal world like and they talk about this a lot like 90 whatever 98 percent of our of our like inappropriate videos or violated videos are flagged by machine systems and like a, a human never has to see them again um, and part of this is to avoid the like Casey Newton great stories about like the the real traumatic toll of content moderations. Like, why can't we just like that's a job we want to like shift to robots basically, right? And I do think like content ID is like we shifted that to robots and like that works out like pretty well. Aside from like uh, like a few tweaks a year, like a complaints, but like they are very happy with that trade off with like uh, YouTubers complaining about copyright content ID versus the like extreme financial success success and like lack of lawsuits that, that content <laughs> IT brings. And so, yeah, I think that like, you know, this is still, it's still a Google company and like Google's DNA is like, we can do machine learning at like whenever we can do machine learning at scale, like we're going to do it. <laughs> whenever the robots can do it for Google. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope that was an eloquent answer. I don't, I don't know if I hit it on the nose there, but no, I think you got it. I, I think for me, it's, it really comes down to, um, Google is a company with with pretty strongly expressed internal values. I think about this with all the social media platform companies. Inside the company, the employees are expected to live by the company's values, which often include some amount of inclusion and diversity and tolerance. Right, and they like every company they want to celebrate the wide variety of people that use the platform. And so you you have right, they want to spotlight gay and lesbian creators. They want to spotlight people of color. They want to spotlight trans people. And then YouTube itself, the product does not do that thing. Right. And like in very real, very tangible ways. And that disconnect is, is real on every platform, but it seems very pronounced on YouTube. You know, YouTube's premise is like, we don't have the gatekeepers of Hollywood. And it was the book, I think, hopefully gets us across like some of the earliest creators and the ones that really break through were people of color were like doing inventive and creative stuff and coming from backgrounds that wouldn't necessarily like they said it like I don't have a clear path to me in Hollywood or on TV, but like YouTube is like a way for me to have a clear path. It did work and like it had it's profoundly in that way, like profoundly changed uh, the media landscape. 
and YouTube has had that power. And yet they don't trumpet that a lot, uh, which makes me think that it's like not quite there in the data, perhaps that like, <laughs> it's not, you, like, you know, and, and like, like Mr. Beast, Jimmy is like a really fascinating character and like having him on stage is like YouTube is very fine with that. But I've never seen, I'd be curious if someone does a, a data, but it does like, I'm, I'm wondering about like YouTube burnout has been this the problem for a long time and like creators like don't have a long lifespan on this platform for a variety of reasons and obvious ones and like it feels like in some i have no idea if this is true but like there are a lot of prominent women that have like left youtube and that's something that like youtube hasn't really a, a, i don't think addressed that well there were some times when you know during the trump era when they were like forgive the term like trying to lean in on this a bit like you know the book has a discussion about like oh youtube's like we're the only social network run by a woman. Like, that's a great, great opportunity for us. And I talk about sort of the reasons why they uh, were really timid making these these steps around the issues around gender equality and racial justice. Like, clearly after George Floyd, they made a big push for that. Uh, like all companies, I mean, it'd be really curious to go back and see a couple of years later, like what has changed. Uh, they started a fund, right? These efforts are sort of short lived in part because they're they're like responsive to what they see as like sort of a new cycle type uh, issue rather than like larger OKRs at the company. All right, I want to end with a little bit of a lightning round. Please. We live in a moment of increasing antitrust scrutiny of all these companies. Do you think YouTube would be better off if it got, if it got split up from Google? Well, it's, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. So I mean, <laughs> it's a total <laughs> theoretical. That's a really interesting question because I think I can say yes or no. Like, It'd be curious to see like what they do with more constraints, right? They have like fewer resources to, to like, like literally like just bandwidth and like servers and then like Google's advertising system. But I'm like a little bit uh, willing to buy the argument that like, you know, if you want YouTube to do moderation at scale now, you, you need the resources of a company like Google. Yeah. Um, we both know Kara Swisher. Her theory is that they would immediately launch a search engine, which I think is just like the funniest. <laughs> I mean, they have it's the second biggest search right. Engine that's what in I mean. So they yeah. would just extend it to text and they yeah. would call it a day yeah, and yeah. compete with Google. Yeah, YouTube has other products. They have YouTube TV, which is rapidly becoming one of the biggest like cable providers on the internet. A lot of your book is, uh, and you mentioned it several times how YouTube was pointed at TV is the thing that it wanted to kill. Now it is a huge provider of television. And it's competing with TikTok. So where is the lane now with YouTube? What are they going after? Or are they just trying to eat it all? I think they do have, they've had a problem with mission drift in the sense of like, you know, the lane, like the originals program, right? Was a big focus for them. And they were like, oh, we need to wait. We need to jump in and compete with Netflix and Amazon. And then they, that died out. And then this year they eventually killed it and were like going in on, on, on shorts. I mean, I think... TikTok is actually posing a, a more significant threat to them. And so I, I do think that like shorts will be a, a long-term investment. Commerce seems to be something like they talk a lot about commerce, but it's really like there's an uncanny valley there about like how much you want to, to push that before it becomes unpleasant to viewers. So I, I think that, yeah, shorts and TV uh, and, and commerce, but you know, they're also pushing the podcasting and then like whatever <laughs> they're going to do on like YouTube music, right? Like it's still a thing that's, that's, uh, they're, they're trying to, they see themselves as an underdog there. So last slide Aaron question. One of the themes of your book is that YouTube is a social network, but Google refuses to see it as a social network and act like it, which would lead to a variety of different decisions. You know, there's a, a theory out there as Zuckerberg has even floated this, that, like every generation sort of like grabs a social sharing dynamic and that's it for the, and the winner there is the winner. And that's why he bought Instagram because he's like photo sharing is going to capture a new demographic and we have to have it. Obviously with Gen Z, that's TikTok. Obviously all the companies are trying to compete with TikTok. Is TikTok as much of a threat to YouTube as everyone even inside of YouTube seems to think it is? Is it the new social sharing dynamic that will take over or is YouTube more durable than that? The one answer to that is like, go look at the tube filter as a, a reliable source for like most popular uh, YouTube videos the week, right? And they're like, if you look at there every single week, it's like Coco Melon and like kids shows, right? It is like dominated by like shows for toddlers and children. Like, and so I think the, the question is like, does that generation, if like all of those, they watch like the religiously, these, these YouTube, are they going to like jump to TikTok? At, and then when they turn 12, like, are they like when they're preteens? Or, or something else. Yeah, or something else, for sure. I just think, like, I feel like YouTube is sort of always there in the background. I, I mean, not to discount the fact that, that TikTok is a real threat, but um, I, I feel like as far as a business threat right now, like Apple 
and ad targeting has had more of a like kneecapping effect for YouTube and, and Facebook than, than TikTok right now. You, you, wait, actually, I don't think we've talked about this at all. Do you think the Apple ad changes have really affected YouTube on mobile? I think they've hit YouTube in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, and I, and I think the FTC changes. Like, I think the FTC regulating YouTube on, on kids stuff has had, like, a really, like, pretty profound consequence. And, and I think made, like, the kids' environment on YouTube, like, demonstrably better. Yeah. Like, quality. Um, yeah. I won't let my kid use real YouTube, only YouTube kids. And there's stuff that's not on YouTube kids, and she wants to use the regular YouTube app. And I'm like, I'm not, you're not getting closer to that. Once she hits, like, eight or nine is when it gets really, like, that tween, tweens are, like, really. Like, YouTube hasn't solved that yet. All right, Mark, you've given us so much time. The book is great. Like I said, it's my favorite of this genre in uh, recent years. It's just really good. I encourage everyone to go buy. It's on sale now, I think, when this podcast is coming out. Yeah. Where can people get it? People can get it anywhere. <laughs> anywhere they buy books. Are you going uh, to do a reading on YouTube? You know, if only if you'll, if you'll have me. I don't, I don't think I would start a channel just to do that. That would be like a good performance art piece. Maybe, maybe if I'm that desperate. That's pretty good. All right, Mark, thank you so much for being on Decoder. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mark Bergen for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, please give us that five-star review. And many of you have figured this out, but if you tweet about the show at me, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. Research was done by Liz Leon. It was edited by Kelly Wright. Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Bruce Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.